Welcome back. Today, in the third of three episodes, I finish my conversation with Dr. Nicole Loring. Dr. Loring is an assistant professor of political science at Riviere University. We continue on the topic of Aung San Suu Kyi and the controversies surrounding her support for human rights, on why we should care about international relations, even given the domestic concerns in every political system, and the way that we can evaluate the way in which the world is democratizing or not, and the significance this democratization has in how we live today. This series of episodes raises a lot of fraught issues and problems without simple answers. And I am very glad I had the opportunity to engage with these issues and problems. I hope you find a value in it as well. Where this does sort of then lead me, there are a lot of places this could go. Because I think this is a really, um, well, it's not just an interesting one. It's a seminal problem. Yeah. About how do you reconcile the the conflict of the interests that we have, which is the recognition of the equality of all people and the desire to preserve as many cultures as we can. Right. Which is, you know, really seems to be an aspiration of Western societies now, um, which is very unusual. Like people didn't live like this a hundred years ago. There was no need for cultural preservation except for inside that culture. No one from the outside was like, you're valuable. We need to save you. That yeah. just, that, keep, that's keep weird. Speak in your language, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, it's very odd. That's the other thing I try to always sort of instill in students. People aren't like you. Like we are weird people in the history of human beings that we are, we're concerned with the abuses of human rights in a country you can't find on a map. Are you kidding me? Right. You know, so, but what it speaks to I think is this heart, the heart of the problem in, in sort of cosmopolitan theory, broadly, Kant's idea of the perpetual peace and all of this. You can have variation in your culture, but only so much. And as long as it's a variation that's uh, within the boundaries of these larger principles, if you violate that, the word you used, pariah state, I think is exactly right. Because it seems that a pariah state is one who has violated the realm of what is acceptable variation. Right. And this brings up hegemonic theory, right? Which is, I th- has that become problematic in IR quite yet, even speaking about a hegemon? Um, I mean, it's often, it's often talked about in, in IR. We, we do talk about hegemons and hegemonic stability theory and things like that. I don't, to be honest, I... I'm not, I don't know what's really in vogue in IR. Like, I don't know what all the cool kids in IR are talking about these days, whether we do or don't believe in hegemonic stability theory. I'm sort of over in my own corner being like, well, what about Burma? <laughs> yeah, right. So. <laughs> <laughs> but what, I, I suppose what's even interesting about that, you know, um, like hegemonic theory, again, you can trace straight out of Kant. He's like, there's going to be a... a a network of republics, let's call them a league of nations or united nations, whatever you want to call them. But at at the center is the most powerful republic of them all enforcing republicanism across the world. Ding, ding, ding. Right. The problem with it is 
when you rec try to reconcile that with the idea of preserving and respecting idiosyncratic culture, those things don't really work together. Mm -hmm. And yet there is very much, and I think this is in our discipline quite broadly, this desire to have both. To have a universal application of human right that also incorporates the clear violations that that's going that are going to happen from idiosyncratic cultures because they didn't emerge organically and that's perhaps the most interesting thing and i think where we can where i would like to move now uh, with the question of of burma yeah. these these things didn't emerge organically the the universal declaration of human right is like smashing together some stuff from america and some stuff from the french revolution yeah and the the gross violations from the nazis you know, and a sort of a smattering together of these broad free market principles, this kind of stuff. That emerges organically in Europe over 400 years. It didn't emerge globally at all. It's being enforced, which right. is a very interesting problem because as you were pointing to, there's this sort of nascent or what we consider nascent stages of an early democracy or one that's democratizing. But right. does Myanmar sit as a sort of an example of uh, sort of a case for the hope of democratization? Is it a kind of warning on the limits of what democratization is? Or is it kind of an idiosyncratic case that we can't generalize from or is limited in how generalized we can be? Uh, my graduate school professors always were always had to hear from me that generalization is overrated. <laughs> um, I, I particularly am very averse to the idea of generalizing too much. Um, and I think that it's one of the curses of the science part of political science that we have this idea of external validity and right. that things that happen in individual places are not valid unless they could possibly be applied somewhere else. And I just think that's a crock personally um, because places are different and their cultures and peoples and religions and all of that is different in different places. Um, so I'm not really one for generalization personally. I think that there's plenty of lessons to be taken um, from the Myanmar case, but I do think it's an, a pretty idiosyncratic case. Um, I think that the importance of, of a charismatic figure and the rise and fall in popularity, at least in the West of Aung San Suu Kyi, and I just, she's still very popular in Myanmar. I mean, there's a love affair with her in the West that has dwindled quite a bit, but that hasn't happened in Myanmar. And part of it is because of the lack of action that she's taken on the Rohingya situation. Um, because she's a politician and because she would be punished at the polls if she took the side of the illegal immigrants who maybe are supporting ISIS. Like, that's the idea of the Rohingya in Myanmar from a Burmese point of view. Well, and what it does is that so perfectly illustrates the thing we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, the gap between democracy and liberalism. Yeah, Right. She, she is very much appealing to the democratic sentiments, but that's in clear opposition to the liberal ones. Right, exactly. And I think that part of the reason why in the West there was such this strong, I mean, obviously not speaking out against a genocide or ethnic cleansing is 
offensive to the sensibilities of people who believe strongly in human rights. That being said, I do think that there is some level of, I don't know, like maybe disappointment slash sexism going on where there's this idea that in the West, we sort of put all of our hopes on her in terms of her being like the catch-all for human rights and democracy and women's rights and liberalization and all of these things for this one particular country and maybe the world. And like now she's a politician and she has to worry about her constituency. So she's never had a good track record of supporting ethnic minority groups and their intentions or like what their interests are because she's her father's daughter her father wanted the country to be unified he didn't want federalism he didn't want these ethnic states to fulfill their you know their dreams about being independent that's not at all what he wanted and also her father was a military man he was the general so she also has a pretty complicated history with the military of Myanmar and she has to work with them I mean why wouldn't why why would she put herself out there in terms of saying what's happening here is a genocide or ethnic cleansing if it not only meant that she'd lose votes and support for the NLD, which I personally think she thinks is like the way of getting Myanmar forward in terms of democracy. She's playing the long game, right? The NLD is the way to do that in her mind. Um, but also like she has to worry about what the military would do if she called them out like that. So I don't know. It just seems kind of obvious to me that, of course, she wouldn't, like, do that. But the in the West, we just have this idea of her as this paragon of democratic feminine virtue who, like, suffered alone for so long. And now she's finally leading the country. And wait, what did she not say? What did she not do? So I don't know. I, right. I think it's, like, hero worship gone bad. Right. Well, and it also shows... To, to reiterate the point that you made earlier, um, I tend to think sort of to put out my, I mean, I tend not to play out my biases, but I, I think genocides are bad. <laughs> and if they're going, and if they're, I think we agree, Stephen. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to take that morally courageous position. Can we put that in the tag of the yeah. show? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, and that if you have the opportunity to speak or act against it, you probably should. Yeah. That, but what it does is it, it really highlights the gap again between long when a democracy or a republic has been inherited and when it's being created. Right. That the Western people have a a thick enough understanding of what comes along with being in a democratic society with Republican institutions and, and liberal sentiments that while you're trying to create them aren't there. Right. You don't have the First Amendment in the Myanmar Constitution. I mean, they they don't have the freedom of speech that we have here. Like, it makes me think of, and I I sort of wish that more um, that more IR people spent more time reading someone like Machiavelli. Yeah, I I think he speaks closer to some of these sentiments. Like, what's the difference between a republic and a principality, or for us, a democracy and an authoritarian? Well, it's pretty slippy, slidey. Yeah, because to set both of them up requires a certain amount of, for Machiavelli, a certain amount of brutality. Mm-hmm. But it's a brutality in service of something else. And again, what you're sort of pointing to here is: is she making a short-term 
what I think will probably rightly condemned as a kind of horrendous act or a horrendous silence in order to achieve a longer term position of stability where people in the future have less opportunities to make these horrendous decisions. And um, I tend to think of the founders of, of the American country in a very similar way, set it up for the future to not make the same stupid mistakes that we are because we're making them. And some of them should be condemned and should be damned in the harshest ways right. because we are doing it to ourselves. If you read Jefferson and Madison, these guys knew what they, you know, about the question of slavery and, and these problems. And they knew what was coming. And yet they set it up to where the future generations could condemn them right. because of the thing they'd built. And I wonder if, and maybe that's being too charitable to her. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't, she's not a saint. She's not. I mean, she's, she's an imperfect person like all of us. Um, I think she's a very smart person and I think she's very politically minded. And to be honest with you, I think that a lot of this does have to do with like surprise that a woman would be cutthroat or like politically minded almost. And, and I mean, also this image of her, there's a lot of really interesting research. Um, Lisa Bruton from Southern Illinois University has written about this, about the way that people in the West sort of portrayed her while she was, you know, under house arrest and that sort of thing. And like the feminization or the, um, the, the gendered aspect of like the way we saw her because she was essentially a damsel in distress. Yeah, and right. now she's going, you know, in front of, of um, the, essentially in front of the world declaring that there isn't ethnic cleansing going on in the country. Like, it, it's, I think it's really difficult mentally for people who just want her to be a pretty nice lady who, like, suffered a lot, but she did it in, like, a nice way. For democracy, which is also nice and gives us good feelings. Right. Like, we just want her to win in the end or, like, be the good guy in the end. And I think that, like, it's really unsatisfying for people when that's not the case. But, like, she's an actual person in a a pretty complicated political situation. So, I don't know. I mean, that's that's my assessment of it. Um, I... Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I, I think people also just have really like basic or they they struggle with just like basic understandings of, you know, I, that one of the questions I get a lot is like, how could this be happening? Buddhists are supposed to be peaceful, which, you know, That's all organized religions are supposed to be peaceful, but we don't seem to have a problem with understanding how extremists in Islam or like Christianity or like any other group could do any sort of act of violence. But for some reason, again, in the West, we have this idea that Buddhists are the one standout religion. Right. All they, right. All they do is, is meditate and yoga. Um, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. right, right. It's yeah. absurd. It's, right. It, it's one of those things of um, you simplify it to the point of whitewashing. Yeah. And um, you know, and it, it not only does it does, the person that you are doing this to a great disservice, but it does you a great disservice too. It makes you think make way too simply, uh, you know, as a simpleton and yeah. it's very bad. You should be mad at yourself if you do this. 
And it's just everything's complicated. <laughs> That's what right. we're trying to say. Right. Everything's and more complicated than you think it is, and none of us have any answers. Right, right. And the, right. And so the best that we can do is struggle, right? And to, or go on a podcast. And well, or go, or go on a podcast called The Struggle to Understand. You know, how about that? <laughs> How's that for a plug? <laughs> I'm plugging myself. Good Lord. Um, so I do have I do have two more questions sure. that um to shift gears a bit and to sort of put on your American citizen hat a bit here. Um, why? Well, it's a, a citizen looking outward so that you can then look inward, so to speak. Okay. Why, why should Americans care about the state of Myanmar or Burma? Is it a, like a strategic concern or is it a principled one? Um, is it another example of our support of this sort of march toward a universal cosmopolitanism? Yeah. Um, so I'll let you tackle that one first and I'll ask you the, the follow-up. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I think it, yeah, I, I think it's more of a philosophical or moral question. I mean, I think to a certain extent, it's important for Americans in particular. It, it's important for everyone, but especially Americans, it's important for us to like look outside of our own region and country and understand a little bit about countries that are really, really different from ours. Um, just because it makes us more empathetic, it makes us smarter, it makes us, I don't know, like better world citizens. And that seems like a good thing to be. Um, I think it might also, watching a country that's at the very beginning of its own flawed democracy might help us to have a little bit of insight into our own flawed democracy. And I mean, we're at a really crux point, I think, in our, in our country's history. And a lot of people feel really negatively about the way that our country is moving. Um, but I don't know, it's, there's a lot of countries on earth and there's a lot of democracies and some of them are quote unquote more democratic than others. Um, I, I just think the more information you have and the more, the more you look outside of your own situation, the more context you have for what is going on. And I mean, I'm still, I'm still learning at that. I'm not, I'm also, of course, I have my own biases. I have my own worldview and my own context for where I grew up and how I was raised and, you know, my own life experiences and lack of experiences. And I think just the more that we can try to push ourselves out of that, the better. So you raised uh, two interesting things that I, before I even get to my other question that I, I'd love to um, at least comment on. The yeah. use of the uh, the phrase, the global citizen, might be the most fraught w phrase that we have. Yeah. Because built within it is that, that exact problem we were discussing about cosmopolitanism and, and the rest true. and a not yeah. respect for cultural, you know, inheritance and these things. But it's, yeah. it's, it's language that we have so integrated in the way we talk about the yeah. world today. Yeah, as if, it's even in like some of my syllabi, like not that I put it in, but like it's in part of the like learning outcomes or whatever. Right, right. <laughs> it's something that we just so take for granted. And but yeah. you ask someone about what it means. And it's, it's, it's like a Hallmark card of, of platitudes. Yeah, that's really true. And I mean, the way that I was using it was more in just a sense of like, don't be a shitty person to the rest of the world. But the, like, yeah, it definitely comes with a lot of other baggage in terms of this cosmopolitanism or right. indeed, like global norms. Right, right. Try not to be a nativist. 
Yeah, uh, yeah. Right? Yeah, I think that that's fair. The, <laughs> the second point that I wanted to raise is the consternation about the position of the American uh, society or where we are politically. Now. And I think we could also project this onto our European friends as well. Yeah. Most of them. How much of this, or this is what I've been thinking about it, how much of it is a regression to a kind of political mean, which is to say the way we've been living since 1945 is very unusual for a people. Mm-hmm. Usually we live somewhere in between uh, semi-authoritarian and semi-democratic, or I would actually put forward that our more natural state as human beings politically at least as history has laid it out, is living under authoritarian regimes, not democratic ones. Right. Or how much of it is, to even take it out of that scale, returning to a kind of more democratic politics that isn't so institutionalized. Another thing that's so unusual about the post-World War II era is its incredibly conservative nature. Always wanting to preserve nation states and borders and not wanting, you know, because people have been going to war for conquest and for stuff forever. This precedes written history. Yeah. We have entrenched this idea that borders should be what they were when, you know, in 1945 or 1948 or whatever, shouldn't change. It's incredibly conservative. And that the sort of uh, uprising of populism, which is a threat to this kind of conservative institutionalism. Right is a kind of regression to what democ- or to what a democratic society was, say, in 1900, mm-hmm. than it is for us in 2020. Yeah. I don't have an answer on that. That's just me musing. But I, I, I wonder if that is, if our um, reaction is a kind of reacting to an unusual condition or to an outlier, and that the mean is actually somewhere closer to perhaps where we're headed It just doesn't look like a mean because of how we've been living. And I guess that kind of goes back to my point about how, like, the more you, the more you know about places or context outside of your own, the more context you actually have, right? Right. That we can be like, oh, as I've read more about this, I realize it is actually kind of unusual, the situation that we're living in right now. And it's not the norm, but you wouldn't know that if it was your only context. Right. And that I, to me, that's what the, the meme about a boomer is like, it refers to a particular age group, but it also is when you were crystallized in, there were three networks, you only had three pipelines to information. The world was what Walter Cronkite said it was by God. And now you have 500 million avenues to information with no ability to discern what it is. Well, this is wrong. It shouldn't be this way. Right. Except for the way you grew up was very much outside the norm. I mean, this is bizarre to have one. It's almost, I mean, to not have the state telling you all of your information, having it come from a private party who was invested in a broad sense in the interest of the public and not their private interest. What are you talking about? This is a utopia. (laughs) Like this doesn't happen. And that we no longer have it now. And everybody is like chicken littling it. It, and in certain sense, it's like we need to spend more time studying things in the 19th century, even in America, to understand what the American mean was. It wasn't 1965. It wasn't, it wasn't 1950. 
it yeah. was something far closer to the grime and nastiness of the 1870s and 80s, rife with class tensions, rife with racial tensions, incredibly democratic. There's all kinds of democratic violence that's going on in these decades. This may be far closer to the norm of what it is living in a democracy than it is in our very buttoned up, very conservative system that I tend to like because it's yeah. predictable. You like, you know, when the when you flip the light switch, the light comes on. You don't have people burning things in your yard. You know, these kinds of things. This is good. But right. I wonder how much of that is. Um, we we weren't we we aren't very well versed both in our own history, but in the international one. And I think the one you're pointing to is exactly right. Yeah. It may be. And we're, we're seeing that a lot right now too with the virus and yes. all of these. You know. Pe- I'm actually really, really enjoying the things I'm like some of the posts about the 1918 Spanish flu to me is a little bit heartening. I mean, not that I feel good about what's happening because I definitely don't, but it's almost relieving to be like, Oh good. We're not the only idiots. (laughs) Like, Oh good. They were stupid a (laughs) hundred years ago. Right. Right. Like I think it's kind of a similar thing where it's like, Oh, this is not unique or special. This is the norm about how humans react when our whole world is turned upside down and no one really, even if we do like technically know what to do, we refuse. So yeah, that we're, we're <laughs> that we're fairly superstitious species, or more than that, yeah. we're a very very superstitious creature. Um, yeah, and, and that like the, the psychology of accepting new information that's inconvenient or unpleasant is really difficult, phys- yep. physically difficult for us. Yep. So yeah. No, I, that's right, and so, but this actually then leads me to um, I think my final question for you is. Why is the upcoming election in Myanmar important? Obviously, it's important internally, but why yeah. is it important to us sort of as Americans to watch it? And then why is it important, say, for political scientists to watch it? Because I'm not sure those are going to be the same answer. Sure. Um, so the the election in Myanmar is taking place on November 8th. So it's going to be a few days after our own election. Um, I assume that most Americans are going to still be tuned into news about our election by that time. Yeah. Yeah, um, probably I, think, right. I think that the the thing that's going to be really important to watch, there's a couple of things that's going to be important to watch. Um, so first is what happens with the NLD? Does the NLD win again and continue as the majority party in power? Or do they lose seats and have to come up with some sort of um, some sort of you know, alliance with another party? Do they lose seats and they aren't? majority party in power anymore that's going to be important because i think this is going to be a referendum on the nld and the nld in myanmar is a stand-in i think generally for liberalization and westernization and democratization um that they are sort of this they are probably considered the most cosmopolitan or global type party a lot of the other parties that are in place are more niche parties and that's the beauty of you know proportional representation parliamentary systems is that you actually can vote for the smaller parties and get representation that way um a lot of ethnic minority people in 2015 voted for the nld instead of the parties that represented their specific ethnic minority group 
And that might change this year, especially, you know, in regards to um, what's going on in Rakhine State with the Rohingya crisis. Um, and I think what we're going to see probably is going to be a backing off on the NLD. I just, they were the opposition party for a really long time. They represented this really abstract idea of democracy that most people in Myanmar, when surveyed, could not really define very clearly. They just knew it was good. Um, and I think that living under five years of a government by a party that you have sort of built up as the answer to all your problems, you're probably not going to feel as positively about them afterwards, right? And we see this in, in the U.S. We see this like midterm effect of the party of the president often gets punished at the midterms right. if they don't like the president. We're probably going to see something similar to that. Um, it, it might not be the case because of COVID um, that maybe people will will see the NLD as like more capable of handling the situation or not wanting to change parties during the pandemic or anything like that. But I guess what I'll say is the thing that's important, I'm not going to try to make the argument that the Myanmar election is necessarily more important than the U.S. election because the U.S. election that's coming up is definitely important. Right. Um, but I think the Myanmar election in, in the long term from this question of liberalization and democratization and like what it means and what direction it's going, I think it's going to be important to see how people feel about a party that has for many decades represented democracy and a very Western idea of democracy. Um, how do they feel after living under that? Because I think that that is going to show, you know, the sense that democracy is not a straight line, that politics change and people's preferences you know, adjust with the reality of the promises that have been made and broken or made and kept. And this is something that both citizens and political scientists, probably for different reasons, are going to be interested in. Uh, because, you know, we've seen this in, in other ways, too, with populism, like we've talked about, or, or the Brexit referendum, seeing these things in action and realizing that maybe it's harder to predict how people might vote or like the reasons for why people might go back on a political decision or political support or whatever. I think it's important to, to watch out for that and to try not to apply our own, our own thinking on it necessarily, because I think we have a bad habit of doing that to other countries and other people. I think that's there's a lot to chew on there because the, yeah there is that fundamental question especially if the american interest or observing political dynamics in myanmar is a philosophical commitment to the principles of liberalism if they have an election that seems to reverse that trend then it goes against the very interest that we have invested in such a place and so you can see why certainly why the reaction would be, oh no, these things are going poorly. Right. And but, that's the reaction to Aung San Suu Kyi, right? Is that she was that symbol for us, for us, right. by us, I mean the West. Right. Like, oh, she is this liberal, Western, educated, pro-democracy lady. She's going to do, she's going to push the country in the right direction. Um, 
Well, and but, it is very loaded, right? But, our our idea of the right direction is very. But what it may, but what it may actually do is show, or reinforce the idea that when things are free and open, or becoming freer and more open, which I think is probably the case in Myanmar, yeah. as it becomes more free and open, it becomes more unpredictable. And so, what may end up happening is if this is a deviation from the intended philosophical principle, it may actually reinforce the entrenchment and the value of a democratic norm, which is living in a system that doesn't go the way that you think, but then allows you to change course in the next election. So it may actually be beneficial. And so that was like at the very beginning of this, you asked for my definition of a democracy and that was the huge difference between the 2010 elections and the 1990 elections in Myanmar so the 2010 elections were a lot of people were like they're not democratic and this is terrible and the military essentially set the entire thing up right like the whole system they pretty much set up so that they would feel good about the results because in 1990 they lost and so they set it all up to win in 2010. And so they didn't have to overturn the results. And so it was like, okay, this is just a sham democracy. But then five years later, they had elections under essentially the same rules with not very many changes. I mean, it was the same constitution and they lost and they did not overturn the results, which kind of leads us to the question of like, at what point is it democracy? I mean, of course, the military still has their hand in it. And the military still has a veto over constitutional amendments and all sorts of things like that. But they lost and they had the confidence to not overturn it and to not throw everyone in jail like they did, you know, 25 years earlier. So, right. That's yeah. right. That's right. And it, that's where it sort of leads to the one of the things that seems to be incredibly essential to our notion of democracy in the West is the peaceful transfer of power yes. in periodic intervals, not once in a person's lifetime. Right. That that it happens in scheduled manner and that every time it happens, it happens. And that there's an orderly process and that power is not attached to an individual. Right. And I'm more concerned about that in the U.S. this year than I am about Myanmar. <laughs> yeah, I find it interesting because I I don't I don't share the actual concern. Like, if if President Trump loses the election, and the Electoral College votes in Joe Biden to be the next president on the day of the inauguration, once Joe Biden is sworn in, Trump yeah. is no longer the president. Like, that's sure. the end. Yeah. That's the law. But it may cause a fundamental problem to the norm if he doesn't go. So the institution will be fine. What may be fractured is the public trust in it. Yeah. And I think my, my feeling on it is I think we might end up seeing something and it definitely depends on where things fall. I think if it's a blowout the night of it won't like a Joe Biden victory blowout, it won't be as much of an issue. But if there is an unclear result, the night of election and then you know, absentee ballots are counted and there's the blue shift that we're all expecting to happen right. with the absentee ballots and the mail-in ballots. I think we might see something similar to 2000 when we might need to have, you know, some sort of court case to determine what, what happens and recounts and those sorts of things. I hope that doesn't have to happen. 
Um, because yeah, I agree. I, the, I think the, the biggest threat to the system, which has its problems, but like you, I also like to live in a system where I'm going to wake up in the morning and things are generally going to look the same. Right. Um, it, I think that the erosion of public trust in the institutions and, and voting and all of that is the more damaging thing. Um, but it, it makes me think that, I mean, 2000, that was 20 years ago. It may have well have been 500 years ago. Yeah. The, the idea that you would have two people who, like for all the problems of the 2000 election, the system worked. I don't I think mean, that it, I don't know that the system worked in the way that we wanted it to, but there weren't tanks in the streets. No one enforced sure. this stuff. It, it, it fundamentally undermined the apolitical view of the Supreme court, which it's never recovered. It may should never have had, had it to begin with, but it did, right. but it showed that the, that there are mechanisms to address these kinds of problems. And that should give you faith yeah. in the system to handle these kinds of, of issues, whether you agree with the outcome or not. And I certainly have like Bush v. Gore is such a silly ruling. Um, it's a very silly ruling. And we, and they even know that it was silly because nobody's used it or almost no one's used it as precedent since then. Yeah. I don't I, know what the country looks like if we have to go through that again for five weeks, like we did in 2000. No, I know. Yeah. It's so I, I'm teaching a class on elections this fall because I'm insane and it seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and just stab out both eyes. <laughs> I'm spending a whole week on the 2000 presidential elections and it's fascinating. Yeah. I, I mean, I was pretty young when it happened. So revisiting it as an adult, I'm like, I can't believe we lived through this. <laughs> have you, did you, have you watched the HBO movie recount? No, I haven't. I oh, should. I need oh, to it, it is. It might be the most excellent representation of that whole debacle. Because yeah. it shows just how absolutely insane the entire thing was. It was completely insane. And like, to, to a certain extent, yeah, the institutions worked because we didn't have civil war about it. But to a very, I mean, it was very obvious that there were a lot of really broken aspects to the system where literally one person could be like, no, I don't feel like it. Right. <laughs> and that was the end of the conversation. Well, and so and it would be less of an issue if that person didn't have a partisan reason to say no. Yep. And like, that's where it really shows why in God's name are some of these people being elected? Why are these not nonpartisan appointments? Um, right. right. So yeah, that, that's right. But here where the 2000 election is concerned, like it's going to be, well, in the same way that the entire Trump presidency, almost nothing has happened. Like that's like legislatively, this is like the most dull, flat, nothing's happened in this era. Yeah. Everything that's happened has been non-legislative, has been all narrative and antics and bull crap. And just, all like flashbang, wig. Right. It's just all reality TV <laughs> yeah. nonsense. And then- Isn't uh, that and the what last, the people wanted, Stephen? Well, yeah. <laughs> what they um, voted for. But, but- uh but then when you are faced with actual real crises, and when we're recording this, we have two hurricanes that are looking like they're going to slap right into the southern part of the United States. Yeah. 175, almost 180,000 people have died of COVID. California is currently on fire. Yeah. And there is no end in sight to these escalating crises. Right. And we have a president that thinks he has to be a president on TV and that's it. Right. 
what does that look like in a contested election? Right. Do you yeah. add that to the layer of these things? And at a certain point, you know, public trust does crack. And that's a far bigger problem than the institutions cracking. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that's the, you don't recover. Like, I'm not sure we ever recovered from Watergate as a people. All politicians are crooks. Why? Because of right. Richard Nixon. We caught right. him. And so there's just this deep cynicism and it's very much fueled the Trump presidency but it's certainly not a right-wing proposition. There are just as many left-wing people in the country who think everything is horrible and we basically live with Satan. And- uh, The one thing we can all agree on is that everything's broken. Right. (laughs) Right? Like we think it for different reasons, but I think that's a pretty nonpartisan- Right, it's nonpartisan to think that having public trust makes you a sucker. Yeah. Um, And- Doing Doing things for your fellow man is- and, and it's interesting how those lines in America don't line up with the ethnic lines in a country like Myanmar, where they would have, I'm sure, have deep problems of public trust yeah. along these ethnic lines, where in the U.S., it isn't along those lines. It's sort of, we use partisanship as a proxy. But even within the partisan division, it's not clean anymore. Because on top yeah, of all of this, we're seeing sort of electoral coalitions fall apart, um, like yeah, the Democratic Party. I mean, the the splits between moderates and progressives during the primaries and beyond is yeah, there's a lot of even in the Republican Party where you're not seeing a fragmentation, you're seeing a shrinking. Mm-hmm. Like the people that don't agree with Trump are leaving; they're not fighting him. The party's right. getting smaller. Right. And but what it, in a certain sense, what it's sort of producing. This is another one of those. I in a normal time this would definitely be a sort of a realignment period. This is a kind of, not crises, but feels that way to people who are going through it. When there's a mass- I don't know, I think it's a crisis. I would, I would qualify 2020 as a crisis year. Well, I mean, like the election of 1980 is a sort of realignment. You have one in 1932, which is real alignment because of a crisis and the depression, you know, this kind of stuff. Those things, when your political identity is taken from you because it's all getting reshuffled, it may be an individual crisis that doesn't necessarily require a national one, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. This one is doing both at the time where all these other crises are going on. And it's like, and there's it, very much a palpable sense that people are going, what in the hell is going on? Yeah. And it's one of those, again, one of these interesting things that as you increase the amount of context that you can give to situations like this, one you take a little bit of solace in knowing other people have faced things like this before. And then you get the, but they haven't faced it like this. Oh my God. Also that comes along with it. So uh, there's a double-edged sword here to this. I, I, the 2020 is going to be, I hope people have memorabilia from this era because we're going to be talking about it for the next 50 years. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see how we recount our experiences of this year in 2060, God willing that yeah. we make it there. I know, um, right? About how, how incredibly normal and insane it felt to be alive in this period where everything was changing, but most people's lives weren't completely overturned. Some were absolutely, but right. it's been uh, an era of bifurcation. It's useful I think we've to had reflect. So many on. years as as Americans, we've had so many years where 
our world seemed like it was growing and this year it felt like everything suddenly shrank Mm -hmm. in a way like in your everyday life right it's just everything and I mean we're still you're still like looking out at everything going on and there's a lot to look at but now a lot of us are doing it through you know little telescope from our from our submarines of quarantine or whatever. Well, it, it makes me, and I don't want to be overly glib, just regular glib, about <laughs> the, uh, there was an anthem in the 90s about the personal is the political. I mean, it predates that, but that really becomes an anthem. And it's really an anthem yeah. of feminism. Yeah. And a sort of the principles that you get of postmodernism from someone like Judith Butler that sort of percolate and then come into the American sort of political landscape. Right. Both of those things are existing now but in the negative image from Donald Trump. Everything is personal, therefore yeah. everything is political. Yeah. And he's the most non-truth president that we've ever had. In that sense, he's very much a postmodernist. I don't imagine that these people thought that their anthems would lead to someone like Trump, but it's a, a useful reminder that when you put something out into the ether, it doesn't always come back to you the way that you thought. Yeah. Nicole, thank you for coming on. This was super enjoyable. Uh, thank you for being so generous with your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Anytime, happy to, happy to join you again. Terrific. All right, we'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the conversations on this channel, please consider subscribing or supporting the channel more directly with the link in the description. And I hope you'll join me in the next episode.